You have fallen into Event Horizon with John Michael Godier. In today's episode, John is joined by Andy Weir. Andy Weir built a two-decade career as a software engineer until the success of his first published novel, The Martian, allowed him to live out his dream of writing full-time. He is a lifelong space nerd and devoted hobbyist of such subjects as relativistic physics, orbital mechanics, and the history of manned spaceflight. This episode contains spoilers for Andy Weir's new book, Project Hail Mary. And with that, we would like to thank our sponsor, Audible. With Audible, you can find the largest selection of audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers and new releases to original entertainment from top celebrity creators and thousands of popular and binge-worthy podcasts. Our pick this week is Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir. In Project Hail Mary, a lone astronaut must save the Earth from disaster. Ryland Grace is the sole survivor on a desperate last chance mission, and if he fails, humanity and the Earth will perish. Except that right now, he doesn't know that. He can't even remember his own name, let alone the nature of his assignment or how to complete it. You can listen to Project Hail Mary right now. Just visit audible.com slash event horizon or text event horizon to 500 Also, with Audible Plus, you get full access to the Popular Plus catalogue, where you can listen all you want to thousands and thousands of popular audiobooks, original entertainment and podcasts, including ad-free versions of your favourite shows and exclusive series. And for the fellow listeners who like to relax to something while you drift off to sleep, there's guided meditations and sleep tracks, all available to download and stream so you can listen anywhere on any device. To listen to Project Hail Mary right now, just visit audible.com forward slash event horizon or text event horizon to 500 500. Andy Weir, welcome back to the program. Hey, thanks for unmuting me. I've been waiting for a couple of years. (laughs) Just sitting here waiting for you guys to bring me in on one of these conversations. It's my way of making you write books. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Now, Andy, you've got a very good book coming out, Project Hail Mary. And I, as I told you off air, it actually is my favorite of your books. It, I, I, wow, could, I could not put it down because it goes specifically into things of great interest to me, such as how do you communicate with an alien? And I wanted to ask you first, could you give us just a light, no serious spoilers synopsis of Project Hail Mary? So my book that goes into interesting concepts like how to communicate with an alien, you want a no-spoilers synopsis. <laughs> Alrighty. <laughs> well, that, that, that actually is a synopsis. So <laughs> how to communicate with an alien. <laughs> so basically, our protagonist wakes up in a spaceship with no memory of who he is or why he's there. And over time, with uh, flashes of memory, he comes to realize that it's his job to save all of humanity from an existential threat. An existential threat is something that humanity faces constantly. And we're still alive. And This is a 
short-term existential threat. Basically, an extraterrestrial microbe, just a non-intelligent life form, infects our sun. And basically, it's a life form that it's kind of like algae, but it lives on the surface of stars and it collects energy and reproduces. And then it, it spores out to go uh, seed itself to other stars. And all of the stars in our neighborhood are dimming along with our own. And uh, once the sun dims below a certain point, the biosphere of Earth will stop functioning. The food chain will collapse and everybody will die. So it's uh, it's our protagonist's job to find a solution to that. <laughs> now, there's a lot of science in the idea of something that can infect a star. Is there like a, a seed paper or research regarding the possibility of life that can actually sustain itself in the upper atmosphere of a star? Nope. I made it all up and I did all the uh, science research myself, but this, this particular life form has a special trait. It's called astrophage. That's what, that's what people name it. And astrophage has a special trait where it can take heat energy and turn it into mass that it stores. So it can turn energy into matter and it stores it actually as neutrinos. And then it can turn that back into energy when it's time to propel itself through space to go try to find another star. So this means that the heat energy that should be like vaporizing it ends up just getting continually turned into to mass. So the inside of, of one of these astrophage cells is actually not that hot. Not nearly as hot as the you know surface of the sun. Now they propel themselves through space, moving from star system to star system using light, right? Mm -hmm. How fast would did you envision these things moving? I mean, can they really get relativistic speeds? Yeah, oh yeah, they get very relativistic. So using light as a propellant is the most efficient way to travel in terms of how much mass of fuel you need to to get up to a good speed. And they evolved this naturally. They evolved this ability to travel interstellar distances. And the way they do it is they're just using, these are small microscopic organisms. They're like 12 picometers across or something, or 20 picometers across. And they, they the majority of the mass inside of them when they're fully enriched and ready to travel is like 80% of it is just neutrinos that it's gonna convert back into light. And so uses that light, it doesn't have a lot of mass to start with. So it, it, it gets up to a good speed really, really fast. And it travels at, you know, several nines toward the speed of light. Now, so 99.999999% the speed of light while it's traveling to another star. And that's actually a critical part of its life cycle because it would not be able to survive without energy for years and years and years. So if you wanted, it, it can infect other stars within about an eight to 10 light year radius. It wouldn't be able to survive eight years just out in space without an energy source, without a sun. It would basically starve to death. But by getting going close to the speed of light, it experiences time dilation. So it actually only needs to survive about a month of its own time between stars. And it does have enough energy reserves to do that. Now, what is the end result of an infection of astrophage? Does the star just simply dissipate? No, the star, uh, think of it, infection is kind of a misleading term when it comes to astrophage. A better description would be colonization or seeding. Basically, it's, it's very similar to algae in our oceans. 
the algae that's in our oceans makes use of water and all sorts of other things, but it's not, it's not like it's going to eat the entire ocean. It just lives within the ocean. Now, by the same token, astrophage lives on the surface of the star, but lacking any predators, lacking anything to eat it, lacking anything to kill it, it just keeps doubling its population at regular intervals. And it gets to the point where the astrophage, the astrophage population is so huge that it's absorbing several percent of the sun's total output. And if we just lose a few percent of the solar output, that, that, that threatens the entire biosphere of Earth. But eventually the, the astrophage would simply become so numerous that it would self-correct in population and the star itself would sustain the astrophage indefinitely, but it changes the equation for any planets in that system, including Earth. Right. So the, the astrophage would eventually find a balance point that's like their maximum population, probably not based on the star, but based on the other available materials. There's a little more complexity to their life cycle that I worked out. They actually migrate to a nearby planet to find a source of carbon dioxide because they need to, they need it to be able to reproduce. And so they actually migrate in our system. They migrate to Venus to find that. And and so they will eventually start running low on those materials or there will be so many of them that they're interfering with each other that that would be the limiting factor the sun is just monumentally huge it's not going to have any problems <laughs> but if a few percent of the sun's if the sun goes down in luminance by a few percent earth is going to have a lot of problems you know hypothetically speaking this would be interesting because this would be a biosignature meaning if you had such a creature infecting star systems somewhere in the galaxy and you suddenly started seeing several percent drops in flux <laughs> yep. from stars spreading out from one central point then you would know that you would see an astrophage infection from a distance yeah and that's what they do in the book except for they they notice that there's a problem with the sun itself and once they realize it's dimming they start taking a very close look at nearby stars and see that they're all dimming too Except one. Except one. Except one. Tau Ceti. Yes. Yeah, good old Tau Ceti. Good old Tau Ceti. This brings us into another conceptual part of the novel, getting a human to another star system. Now, how do you deal with people surviving that long of a trip? Well, so basically because they notice that Tau Ceti isn't affected and it's the only star in our area that hasn't been infected by or affected by astrophage they decide they're going to send scientists there to hopefully find out what it is that makes Tau Ceti immune and then figure out how if they can do that to save our well our entire species so the way that they send humans to another star is they they get a whole bunch of astrophage. There's a lot to how they manage to make so much astrophage, but they, they manage to get and basically farm astrophage and breed up a huge quantity of it. And then they use the astrophage itself as a propellant because the astrophage have this nearly perfect utilization of turning mass into energy into light. And so they, they basically find a way to trick the astrophage into pushing on the back of the ship as a fancy way of putting it. And then uh, so now they have that new form of propulsion and they're able to make a ship with enough astrophage fuel that it can travel interstellar distances. Humans surviving that trip, it's not that hard. While 
it takes the ship about 13 years to get from our solar system to the Tau Ceti system, but to the crew aboard, again, because they get up traveling a a uh, reasonable percent of the speed of light, they actually only experience about four years. But even that is a bit too much. So they have to, because it's a small confines and, and there are other issues. So they, they put them in medically induced comas. A medically induced coma, as opposed to something like cryogenics or something like that. A medically induced coma, you're still going to feel... <laughs> you're going to feel that you're not frozen. You're, you're, you're actually still alive. Yeah. So the medically induced coma, what, what are the effects of that when you wake up? Well, for most people, it would be not survivable. You know, most people, if you're in a coma for four years, you're not very likely to ever come out of it, even if it's medically induced and carefully controlled. But, and this is now we're delving into fiction within Within the story, they find that a very small percentage of people have what they call coma resistance and can survive long comas with with no significant cognitive impairment. Now, is it's interesting because you're still going to age and you're still going to metabolize and all this. Yep. So what is the reason to put someone into a medically induced coma? Is it just simpler? They eat less? Well, first off, they eat less. Second off, you can it, you can completely control their biology, right? But most importantly, it was for psychological reasons. They concluded, with, you know, the the you know this is all fictional, right? But the people in charge of this project concluded that the ship is a fairly small amount of space, and there's a crew of three people. And if they concluded that that oh, and it's also by the way a suicide mission. Their, their mission is to go there, find out what happened, what's happening, and then send a very, a very small, tiny ship back with that data. And they're going to all die out there. There's just no way to make enough astrophage for them to come home. So with the psychological mentality of three people in a small confined area for four years, knowing that they're going to die, they decided that there's a good chance that they would just kill each other or have some sort of complete breakdown long before they even reach Tau Ceti, even though they're volunteers, you know. So they, so the powers that be decided, okay, put them in a medically induced coma so that they don't, so that they just wake up at the destination and can focus on their jobs. Now that's an interesting thought because you, if you were, if your planet was threatened, such. Mm-hmm. You couldn't afford to have those people arguing and possibly killing each other. You you couldn't take that risk, so you would have to do something like the medically induced coma, right? Right, but that introduces the risk that the patients will die, right? They're, so you have to compare what are the risks that they kill each other due to psychological issues versus what are the risks that they die due to medical issues? <laughs> Good question. And then you still have the the odd possibility of smacking into something, interstellar asteroids. Uh, not very likely. Uh, there's not a lot of mass out there between the stars. I mean, I suppose it's theoretically possible, but it's it's, you know, in the same way that it's theoretically possible that you'll be struck by a meteor sometime in the next few years. Uh, that's interesting because past hard sci-fi authors like Arthur C. Clarke envisioned like ice shields and things like that. But in effect, you don't really need that. Well, that is correct. The reason the late, great Arthur C. Clarke, who is one of my holy trinity, uh, Asimov, Heinlein, and Clarke are my uh, 
my my guys. <laughs> he envisioned ice shields and stuff to protect from radiation. Now, if you're going to be traveling near the speed of light, the on the, the, uh, interstellar space isn't a complete vacuum. There's like one hydrogen atom per cubic meter kind of out there. But if you're traveling near the speed of light, that means two things happen. First off, you're going by those meters really, really fast, right? And second off, the atoms themselves acquire relativistic mass. So because you're going near the speed of light with respect to those atoms, those atoms are going near the speed of light with respect to you. And that, there's, there's a word for atoms hitting you while they're going really, really fast radiation <laughs> and that that is what you would experience and so that's why in arthur c Clarke's stories there's there's usage of like a big old ice shield in front of the ship so that the radiation radiation has a really tough time getting through water more specifically it has a really tough time getting past hydrogen so that's how they did that but with our heroes uh they had the advantage again of astrophage astrophage has a quirk that it will it that nothing can quantum tunnel through it nothing can just completely bypass astrophage it must collide and so uh, they can use the astrophage itself as radiation shielding now that's interesting now to reference another one of your books the martian if you were going to mount a mission to mars a, a manned mission you need to bring water so you could actually use your water supply as shielding correct yeah that's that's been that's been proposed uh for the the transit to and from mars they've talked about basically you have your water supply you store it in the hull so it's protecting you from radiation and as you use it you store the sewage in the hull so over time you're turning that water into sewage but you have a bunch of different compartments right that's w one way to do it although nowadays nasa has decided that the total radiation exposure for a mission to mars is acceptable so they actually uh, that was a big that was kind of a big thing that went by unheralded they decided that like yes it is a radiation risk but for the first you know astronauts that go to mars they're just going to get that dose of radiation and risk cancer later, I would imagine. Yeah, but it's like people once did a full analysis of how much radiation everyone in the Martian would have been exposed to. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, Mark Watney is the one who got the least amount of radiation because everyone else in the crew was in space for like that whole time. Whereas Watney was on Mars for the majority of the time. And so Mars, the planet itself is blocking half of the radiation that would hit you. So he he actually didn't wouldn't have any problems at all. The the worst off would be Joe Hansen, because it turns out well it makes sense. The younger you are, the more likely you are to get cancer as a result of the same dose of radiation, because your your lifespan is long enough that it gives your body enough time to develop cancer from that radiation, right? And then also for some reason nobody really understands women are more susceptible to radiation than men are. Why? I, I don't know. Nobody knows. But it is a fact. And so Johansson would be the worst off, the most likely to end up with cancer at some point during her life because of that. And it's about 2%. Uh, she has a 2% higher chance of getting cancer than she would if she had never left Earth. Now, I have to point something out uh, about Mars. Just today, we now have a drone yes. flying on Mars. Mark, Mark Watney, 
would be seeing a UFO right now, and it would be ours. <laughs> well, yes, but Perseverance is very, very far away from anywhere on Mars than Mark Watney was. But uh, yes, it's very cool. And one thing I was really impressed by is I saw the photo. It, it took a picture of the ground, and so you can see the ground, and you can see its shadow, the, the helicopter's shadow that it's casting, right? I don't know if you saw that picture. Yes. But it, it's very cool. But in the picture the shadow of the propeller's blades is clear and crisp, right? So the frame rate on that camera is absurd because those props are spinning at 40 revolutions per second, and there's not even a hint of blur or distortion or any problems. So that is one impressive camera. Although I, I, I guess they don't send the cheap cameras to Mars, right? <laughs> Well, it's, you know, this whole mission has been like that where, you know, we have video now mm -hmm. of Mars, whereas, yeah. you know, it used to be you'd get still pictures and you might be able to, you know, string a few together and make, you know, a, a kind of a video, I guess. But now it's much different and you can actually do GoPro style, <laughs> yeah. you know, <laughs> of descent photos. Like I, I was amazed, particularly with the unfurling of the parachute. Mm -hmm as it was coming in that video that that we can finally see video and movies and even get sound from mars yeah it's really awesome in, in regards to project hail mary <laughs> i would like to ask you about the title because it seems to me like the perfect title for this story oh thank you and what led you to think of that title or did it just pop in your head naturally yeah pretty much popped in my head it, well i was thinking about well what would they name this ship and I decided to get a little snarky, and they called it the Hail Mary because it's a last desperate long pass to try to salvage the game, right? Uh, one fun thing, though, is like that is an expression that pretty much only Americans are aware of. Like e even other English-speaking countries like, you know, the UK, Australia, they, they don't know that expression. So <laughs> in other English-speaking countries, they're going to not fully understand why it's called Project Hail Mary. And in foreign language editions, they, they're going for completely unrelated titles. Like they, they don't say Hail Mary in, their, in the title at all. <laughs> in Russian, the last ditch effort or something like that. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. I forget what it translates to, but yeah, all the other ones are like solar danger or whatever. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I can't remember exactly. But yeah, no, I think nobody's actually calling it Hail Mary. Now, interestingly, the one other aspect of this is that we run into an alien and you have to try to figure out how to communicate with it. Now, this is, this is obviously a very relevant issue within SETI because if you ever get a radio signal, you have to decode it if it, if it, actually, <laughs> if it actually has a message. So how do you go about figuring out how to communicate now i have to say it's this is easier if you're actually in person with the alien yeah that's the main thing is that well you have two intelligent and cooperative entities trying to work out how to communicate and they're co-located in other words there's no there's no communication lag or latency now seti has to deal with things like oh if some alien civilization said hi they might have said it a thousand years ago <laughs> and it just took that long for the message to get here but for uh, our protagonist, whose name is Ryland, talking to the alien who 
he nicknames Rocky. They are in the same, well, they're not in the same room, but they're in a room with a wall dividing them so that they can communicate with each other. And they do, well, pretty much the same thing two humans who don't speak the same language would do. A lot of kind of pantomiming and gesturing, and then they're both working hard to understand each other's languages. So they're both kind of paying attention. You know, you point to a table and say table and that sort of thing. Now about Rocky's biology. Envisioning the biology mm-hmm. of an alien species. That was awesome. Was what, uh, <laughs> what, what did you, how did you arrive at, at that biology? And I don't want to give away too much, of course, but what was your thought process going into trying to figure that out? Well, I'm glad you asked. I had a lot of fun with that because I started off by saying like, okay, he's going to meet an alien. Well, where are the alien? Uh, I have no idea what the alien looks like or what he acts like or anything like that. So why don't I start with the basics? Let's talk. Let's think about the home world. So I decided that the alien came from the star 40 Eridani. Okay. And I'm like, okay, well, what planet is he from? And there is a known exoplanet in real life called 40 Eridani, I think, A or B, something like that. So I said, like, okay, that real real planet that exists is Rocky's homeworld. So what do we know about this? Well, the planet is eight times Earth's mass. We know that. And we know that its orbit is its very close to its star. It, its, its whole orbit takes only 46 days. Uh, so it's whipping around the star, and it's really close to the star. And I'm like, all right. So if a planet was eight times Earth's mass, I will just arbitrarily say it has about the same density as Earth. We don't know the density of that planet in real life. But I said, it'll be about the same density, which ultimately works out to it being eh, like like two point something times the diameter and works out to be about two Gs of surface gravity. I'm like, okay, so that's the gravity on the surface. Also, it's really, really, really close to its star. So it's going to be really hot. All right, so I will kind of arbitrarily say, and it, it would need a thick, it would need a thick-ish atmosphere to retain and balance out that heat. And so I'm like, okay, but let, let, let me arbitrarily say it's like 210 degrees Celsius on the surface. But I also wanted there to be liquid water on this planet because for various reasons, we, we find out that life as, as suspected, at least all the life in this book does require liquid water. So I'm like, you know, water at 210 degrees would boil. Well, it would boil if it's at one atmosphere of pressure. But if it's at 29 atmospheres of pressure, the water won't boil. So it's still liquid. So I needed I need an atmosphere thick enough with a high enough pressure that the water would still be liquid. Okay, so now I've got I'm starting to learn things about this planet. It's really hot, it's got a really thick atmosphere, and it's got let's see, it's really hot, a high atmospheric pressure in a very fast year. Like it goes around its star very quickly. Now in real life, if a planet is really close to a star, the star tends to basically sandblast the planet's atmosphere away. So Mercury has nothing. You need a strong magnetic field to protect your atmosphere. So I said, like, okay, the planet has a really strong magnetic field. That way it can be this close to its star and still have such a thick atmosphere. Okay, well, the only way a planet gets a really strong magnetic field is by having a liquid ferromagnetic core, like Earth does, and to spin around. And the faster it spins, the better its magnetic field. So I said, all right, this planet spins around really, really, really fast. So I decided its entire day length is just six Earth hours long. 
So what's neat is that just each thing leads to the next thing. Uh, and then I, then I realized, okay, with an atmosphere that thick, the light isn't going to make it to the ground. So that means the creatures that live on the ground won't have eyes. Or there's no there's no light to make use of to evolve eyes with. So, all right, this creature is, what do we know? Okay, well, these creatures are blind. They don't even have eyes. They never evolved them. They have other sensory input. They're very, very strong because they can move around comfortably in two Gs and, and so on. So that that's kind of like how I developed the aliens from the ground up. Also, I didn't want Star Trek aliens. No, no offense to Star Trek. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Trek dork, but I didn't want an alien to be perfectly comfortable in our atmosphere and pressure and everything like that. I wanted the alien to be really, really alien with like the two characters have completely incompatible environments. A human would die in an Iridian's environment and an Iridian would die in a human environment. Out of curiosity, Favorite Star Trek episode across all the series? I got to go with Balance of Terror, which is an original series episode where it's the Enterprise is fighting a cloaked Romulan vessel in the neutral zone. It's just a really good, well-written episode. I remember that one. That's almost Cold War-like submarine-type vibe. It is, absolutely. It's a submarine fight, yeah. Now, in thinking about alien life again... The Drake Equation and its role in the book, because it would seem to me that you'd have to make certain assumptions to arrive that there would be an alien species close enough to actually communicate with in person. Ah. So what are your thoughts on that? Or do, yeah. No, well, actually, I mean, I guess we're full on spoiler talking here. They come to realize that all of the life in this story um, all, all of Earth's biosphere, all of Arid's ios, biosphere, and all of the biosphere that Astrophage is from, they all are related. Turns out that the uh, Tau Ceti is where life originally evolved, and a progenitor to Astrophage, uh, a, you know, a similar species, but, you know, the kind of ancestors of Astrophage, four and a half billion years ago or so, or four billion years ago, seeded life to other planets just accidentally because it was sporing outward trying to you know get other stars and every now and then something would hit a planet that it could survive on for long enough to breed and so all life on earth and all life on rocky's home world descended from common ancestors that came from tau ceti so the drake equation actually doesn't come into it there was only one genesis involved now, do you think that's that's viable, the idea of panspermia within astrobiology? Do you think that that's actually a, a real possibility in the universe, that, that life could spread from star system to star system? Or um, do you think that that's sort of a little too speculative to well, expect that that would happen? Um, well, there's, two, there's a few answers to that. Number one, within the context of this story, we already have a life form that naturally travels interstellar distances. So a panspermia event in that context is pretty much a given, right? It's no different than how life seeded itself to the other continents on Earth from wherever it ultimately started. It's just eventually going to happen. Another way of looking at it, though, would be to say that 
Yeah, absolutely. Life could spawn from one planet to another. If your life ultimately develops intelligent life, you could say life on Earth has already hopped over to the moon a few times, right? <laughs> and there are there are microbes. They're dead by now, but there are microbes that came from Earth on Mars, thanks to our various probes. So if you start accounting for what intelligent species get up to, then life absolutely will will go out and infect other other star systems. But if you consider that a cheesy way of speaking, then yeah, I mean, it's possible, but really, really unlikely for it to get from one solar system to another. But I definitely believe that there could be panspermia events within a solar system. Like I personally own a meteorite that originated from Mars. Which one? At some point in the distance. Which one? Yeah. Uh, in NGC seven. I I don't remember the exact code name. The one of the numbers. Yeah. Yeah. I actually have a, a piece of Nakla here. Oh. So that we we both have pieces of Mars in our yes. I, I mine mine was actually part of the main body of of the of the same fall. You know, fragmented and stuff like that, where they were able to prove that. I think one of the volcanoes on Mars was just erupting constantly for like a few million years. <laughs> yeah, the the I'm I'm hoping that my small fragment of Nakla is not the one that killed the dog. Oh. Supposedly, <laughs> supposedly one of the stones killed a dog, and I'm hoping that it's not mine. Ah, uh, well, mine was found in Antarctica, so I I feel safe that it didn't kill anybody. <laughs> now, um, no, it wasn't. It was found in Northwest Africa. Yeah, NWA Northwest NWA, Africa. NWA, right? Yeah, yeah, because the that whole area is loaded with meteorites. Not because it's special, but because it's all sand. And it's easy to It's find. the Sahara Desert. And the, yeah, so if you find something, it's either a meteorite or it's a, uh, you know, some human artifact or something like that. Right. So it's much easier to find meteorites there, which is kind of amazing because they find thousands and thousands and thousands, which means that... We're just getting pelted, yeah. We're getting pelted, and, and when you're walking down the street, there's probably a meteorite buried nearby. Yeah, yep. Now... This to get back to alien life. Uh, what is your sense? You know, I know you do a lot of research into this stuff to write sci-fi. Do you think we are alone in this galaxy, or do you think that mm, we got a good chance to have a lot of neighbors? Uh, I don't think we're alone. I think the Drake equation, even if you plug in the stingiest numbers, you still get a whole bunch of potential life and and you know individual genesis. So I don't think we're alone. However. My answer to the Fermi paradox is this. I don't believe it is ever going to be possible to travel faster than light or send information faster than light. I do believe it is like a hard limit. So however fun it is to make a setting like Star Trek or Star Wars where you can travel faster than light and it kind of mimics a nautical theme where individual stars and planets become ports of call and stuff like that, that fits really well in a fictional setting. I don't think it's ever going to happen. I, I just think that we will never be able to go faster than light. So as a result, there could be an alien species just 500 light years away, and we would still not know about it. Like, And 500 light years, by the way, I mean, the Milky Way is 100,000 light years across. Well, and it, it, this is also a function of time. I mean, we only live for, you know, 80 years, something like that on average. And that's a very short amount of time compared to, um, you know, time scales and geologic time scales. So if you can right. extend the lifetime of a human, 
then these distances start shrinking well, because also, if you live for a thousand years. Well, also, if you travel at relativistic speeds, you don't experience as much time. So I guess if you have a if you have a ship that can just accelerate you at one g nonstop all the time, it ends up. It's kind of funny. It will take you a maximum of twenty eight years to get anywhere. What do you mean anywhere? Literally anywhere in the in the universe. Twenty eight years is as much as time as you'll experience. <laughs> and the what you give up is that you can't ever go back in time. So right. you're, you're, you know the, the elapsed time here on Earth is immense but not for you will be millions of years. Yeah. Yeah. So there is that, but yeah, for sure. I mean, there could come a time when there are explorers checking out the galaxy and they themselves are not experiencing that much time because they're going relativistic speeds. Our hero in the book only experiences four years during his trip to Tau city, even though earth experiences 13 years during that same event sequence. <laughs> So, yeah, while the kind of romantic notion of an intrepid group of explorers going out, exploring the stars, and then coming home to the, you know, to the same people, that I don't think will ever happen. Well, then there's the idea of, you know, to, again, reference past sci-fi and other authors, you could do generational ships so that it doesn't matter because you've brought all of your loved ones with you, and it doesn't, doesn't matter how much time it takes you to right. cross the uh, galaxy. And then you run into the weird prospect that the Milky Way isn't really that big. What, something on the order of 100,000 light years wide? You could colonize that in on the order of millions of years. So if you've got 5 million years, you could have a human-dominated galaxy. And 5 million years in a universe that lasts for trillions of years is not that much. Right. No, that's true. That's another thing that I've always thought was kind of weird, is that we as a species are really here on the ground floor of this universe. I mean, like, our universe has been around for about 13 and a half billion years, they think. Our species has, well, not our species, but life on our planet has been around for about 4 billion of that. So, like, since the dawn of time, literally, life has existed on this planet right here for about a quarter of it. And also, we are right at the very, very beginning of the universe's life. I mean, 13.4 billion years, that's a long time. But they, they think the universe is going to last for something like 10 to the 100th years, something like that. We're barely at the very, very beginning. So that's another potential answer to the Drake equation. We might just be first, I mean, to the Fermi paradox, not the Drake. And, you know, if, you had, if I had a choice in the matter... To the Furby Ray, yeah. Now, if I had a choice, though, I would rather it be early because if you are a civilization that comes into being at the very end of the universe, <laughs> it is nowhere near as interesting as it is now. I mean, you would not, you wouldn't see any stars, you wouldn't see anything, you might not even know to practice cosmology or anything because the universe will have just basically. Yeah for lack of a better word, dissipated. Well, I don't know. I mean, by the same token, like, the universe was a hell of a lot more interesting in the, you know, closer to the Big Bang when there were all these, like, subatomic particles still flying around. And <laughs> It's true. And then there was also the, the, I don't know if you've ever read the paper, but there was the epoch of habitability where the entire universe was warm enough for life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
whether whether yeah. that, that actually happened is another another question and it wouldn't have lasted long but it is interesting that that in the early universe things were just so much different than they are now yeah you know, and and it's like at one point the first proton was formed and it's just like and they're that wasn't a thing before. <laughs> and you're just like, wow. It is amazing. And then it makes you, it just, at some point, it just looks weird. You know, it's like that, that the universe yep. is that, <laughs> you know, yep. but we have every indicator that our model is correct. So yep. when does the book come out? Uh, it comes out May the 4th. May the 4th. And actually this interview probably will come out May the 4th or somewhere thereabouts. May, May the, the 4th, 4th be, be with, with you. you. <laughs> Are you already thinking of your next story yeah i've got a couple ideas and i'm i'm working one up now and i'm 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 writing it but i don't talk about my stories until i'm really sure that that's going to be the next one i release and i'm not far enough into this yet to really announce anything i learned a a painful lesson with jack the book i was working on between the martian and artemis that uh, i got seventy thousand words into that before i realized it sucked and i threw it away and that was painful but uh, now, periodically, I have to answer questions like, hey, whatever happened to Jack? I'm like, yeah, yeah, that did, that sucked. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> that's that's something I don't think a lot of people realize is just how much because I've authored two novels myself. Yeah. How much you have to hurt. throw away, you know, in order to get down to the to the actual usable stuff and their entire, you know, say you write 2000 words a day. I at least in my case, you're going to yeah, dump 90% yeah. of well, it, you know? It was painful for me because I dumped, like, the, not just a bunch of work, but the concept. Like, I, I just ditched the entire book <laughs> for Jacques. So, how does your creative process work? Now, when you come up with a story, does it just pop in your head while you're, you know, taking a walk or something <laughs> like that? How, what's that look like? Well, um, I, it generally starts with me speculating on some cool science-y thing. For Project Hail Mary, it was really more about me speculating on, you know, that spaceship fuel. And man, it'd be cool to have that kind of spaceship fuel that can mass convert. And that's kind of where it led to. But then it was just sort of a series of shower epiphanies. I'm like, okay, well, how do I, what are some cool things I could do with this fuel? Oh, well, it makes copies of itself. It should be a life form. Oh, okay. Well, why does a life form store so much energy? Well, it travels from star to star. Okay. Well, where does it get the energy? Well, it lives on the star. Oh, okay. And just bit by bit, it starts coming together. And it really was just a series of like, oh, I see. This is why they're doing this. This is why they're doing that. And I, I don't ever remember a eureka moment. It's just, it starts gelling. It's like, I consider a bunch of ideas of what if what if they do this? What if what if they do that? What if they do this other thing? And then I pick the one that I think is the most awesome and, and run with it. Now, how long does that take? So from the when the moment you say uh, I got a concept, I'm going to start writing. How long does it take you to actually formulate out and write the book itself? Um, generally takes me about a year to get my first draft done. And then from there so a couple of months of editing usually maybe one a month to six weeks of editing going back and forth with my editor and then uh off it goes <laughs> off it goes and then it takes time from publishers as well right? boy does it ever so i finished project hail mary i finished the first draft in january of 2019 and my editor and i were done with our doing back and forth stuff by march and so it that was like over a year ago that it's been completely done 
like <laughs> and uh the publication date still hasn't happened now a lot of that was because of covid you know it shut down the production pipelines of everything during 2019 but yeah this is this is a, a long a long latency <laughs> i'll tell you what i i the covid thing has it, it, it has left nothing unaffected right you know? yeah i mean you're just everything from from you know, obvious day-to-day life, but just every aspect of the economy and, and yep. <laughs> industries, everything, everything got affected. Hey, but you know what? Me being the relentless optimist I am, I just want to point out that we were, I mean, there were people working on mRNA vaccines as a concept, but we were probably 10 or 20 years away from that becoming a real technology that we used until COVID came along and then boom, like when, so this, this really kind of confirms my theory that humanity is awesome. That like, we, like, it's just like when faced with a serious danger, we can do amazing things. And just, we got together and MRNA vaccines are a technology that we now have. Forever. And, and one wonders, one wonders what else can you apply that to? everything that's the thing i mean are we are we looking at a at a a cancer treatment you know something like that possibly but what's more important is that now mrna vaccines are incredibly fast to produce like it it takes a matter of weeks for for them to make an mrna vaccine given a virus like that's it it used to be they needed to breed the virus, breed it, breed it, breed it until they have a watered down version or get a bunch of the virus and then kill it or make sure it's dead and then inject that into you. So your immune system's fighting something that doesn't fight back. And it would take a month, you know, sometimes years to get that done. Now with an mRNA virus, it's going to save a lot of lives because uh, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to make a prediction for you. You ready? Here's my prediction. And maybe everybody's going to laugh at me, maybe not. I bet you COVID-19 is the last pandemic in human history. Interesting, really. So this could this this is it. This is it. I bet you this is the final pandemic because even the technology we have now thanks to COVID is something that we could use that we could use to stop the next one before it can before it can significantly spread. And I suppose any epidemic for that matter. So if you get another swine flu or Right, anything that's viral. Yeah, any vi- bird flu something like that shows up as they periodically do, we now have a tool against them above and beyond anything we've ever had before. Right. Also the 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 public knowledge and will. So this is an interesting thing. You know, the Spanish flu, wrought, you know, wreaked havoc, wrought havoc? I don't know did havoc to everyone on earth back about 100 years ago, right? And you can argue that in the intervening 100 years, we kind of forgot how dangerous pandemics could be. Like it took a lot of convincing to get people to really take this seriously, right? But let's say we were struck with another major global threat, like a major pandemic within the next 10 years. Well, now it's like in living memory and everybody's like, oh yeah, we know what to do in a pandemic. And they would get right to work making these, you know, mRNA vaccines for it and would react very rapidly. But then imagine if instead the next pandemic comes, you know, 80 years from now and people have kind of forgotten how important it is and, and to wear masks and stuff like that in the event that that happens. Well, 80 years from now, I think our medicine is going to be so advanced that it won't matter. <laughs> that it'll be like, oh, pandemic, huh? Well, here we go. 
Yeah, at that point, you've got nanotechnology, right? Yeah, e eating the viruses, and you have a you have an artificial immune system, <laughs> all these things. Right, exactly. Who knows what it's going to be like in eighty years? But so, I believe that this pandemic here is our last because while it remains in living memory for the next thirty or forty years, people will be very conscious and ready to pounce on any pandemic that starts. And then by the time that wears off and humanity is no longer paying that much attention to it, then we'll have the technology to casually stop any pandemic in its tracks, even if the majority of people aren't taking it seriously. Right. So that's my prediction. I think COVID-19 is the last pandemic. Well, when you can develop a vaccine within a matter of weeks and then it's just a matter of production, then it, right. it, never, it never leaves its home country, essentially. Right. Now, um, to go back to the book, the new book. Now, is there going to be an audiobook version and yes. who's going to record it? It's already recorded. Hang on. I'm embarrassed that I don't remember the name. Uh, he's an extremely famous Ray Porter. There we are. Ray Porter is a, a, a much beloved audiobook narrator and he, he did the, uh, the reading. The um, now I, I should note that this this the, these books will be available everywhere: Amazon, Audible, anywhere you want to get them, and in many different languages. Mm -hmm. I wanted to end this on one final question to you. Now you say mm -hmm. that you are an eternal optimist. I am too. A thousand years from now, what do you see humanity as? Do you think that we'll still be here? Do you think we will have solved all of our many problems? Do you think that we will apply? that human ingenuity that we're so good at to um, everything. Yeah, I think that uh, in a thousand years, humanity will be unrecognizable to us more or less. Like, I think the physical human bodies will be pretty much not, not much different, but society, humanity, and kind of how, how people live their lives will be a completely foreign concept. It would be just baffling. Just kind of like if you took someone from the 10th century and brought them here, they would be confused by everything. Like every aspect of our lives would be weird to them. And the same can be said, I think, for people in the 30th century. <laughs> if you could live to see that, would you? Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to see that. I think the future is always better than the past. I think it's awesome. And I, I you know, I'm glad I was lucky enough to be born this far ahead in our timeline as opposed to like at some era where I would be lucky to live to be 30 years old and I have to spend my entire life hunting it hunting and gathering and fighting off other males <laughs> you know yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah there was it used life used to be really yeah. hard for humans yeah. and then now we're lucky enough to live in an, an era That's where we yeah, and and you're you're the Martian could actually become a reality. Somebody could get stuck there and have to survive for a bit or something like that. That could happen within. Well, let's let's hope not. Let's hope it goes a little more smoothly <laughs> than that. Well, actually, or well, we'll take a different take. Let's conquer Mars and turn it into Earth number two. Yeah. Well, as uh, as NASA likes to say, there is no planet B. You know, the a lot of people think, hey, maybe we could colonize Mars to get away from our environmental problems on Earth. It's like, it's easier to fix environmental problems on Earth than it is to colonize Mars. Get that out of your head. We need to fix the planet we're on. <laughs> I hopefully that's that I worry about that, but I think we will. Yeah. You know, I think well, we're moving in the right direction. I think that damage will be done and humanity will survive. And any notions of like reversing global climate change are, I think, not really possible. 
because we don't have a global government to enforce such things. And so I think it's going to be about amelioration. Like people will be like, oh, sea levels are rising. Okay, we're going to stop giving building permits on the shore. Oh, polar bears are dying. Um, time for a polar bear preserve. I think that's kind of what's going to, it's not saying that's what I think is good. I'm saying that's what I think is going to happen. And then eventually our energy technology will reach a point where there is a technology that causes clean energy of some kind to be cheaper than fossil fuel energy. And that's when we'll shift over completely. You think it'll be fusion? Ah, I'd like to think so. I think so. I mean, that does make sense. We can definitely get energy from fusion. We're just not very good at controlling how fast it comes out. <laughs> Ultimately, but we're getting better. We're getting better. We're always about 20 years away from fusion reactors, aren't we? It's been that way for a long time, unless... I remember 40 years ago when we were 20 years away from fusion reactors. Oh, I do too. And, but that I always consoled myself thinking about that. I'm like, well, but at least we have the hydrogen bomb. So we do have fusion energy. It's just not, yep. in, not in the way that we want it. Yeah, so it, we can definitely make fusion energy. <laughs> we just make a, a little more of it than we can reasonably harvest. <laughs> All right, Andy, it's been great talking with you again, and I wish you great luck with the uh, this new book, uh, Project Hail Mary, and I look forward to the next book. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I am Futurist and Science Fiction John, Author. Wrong channel. No, it's not. Thanks for listening. I am Futurist and Science Fiction Author John Michael Godier, currently hosting Event Horizon and wondering where Anna actually came from. One day I had a tablet computer, the next I had a boss. Very disturbing. Be sure. And that's enough of that. YouTuber forever! Like, subscribe, and hit the bell! Sell out. What? <laughs>